Hello everyone and welcome to a very special episode of George and Charlie Off the Bridal. We are recording at Heath House, home to Sir Mark Prescott. George Scott, Charlie Fellows and myself, Tony Rushmer, are all thrilled to be here to find out as much as we can about an extraordinary training career that has spanned over 50 years. This is George and Charlie off the bridle, supported by Fitzdares, who also sponsor the 2021 Windsor Sprint Series. Yes, we're here in the sitting room at Heath House, an historic racing site for over 400 years, something that we'll touch more on in the episode. But before we do so, George, Charlie, what a pleasure and a treat for our podcast to be here in the company of a modern day racing legend. Tregonwell Frampton, a man known as the father of the turf, was the first, late in the 17th century, to train from Heath House. Since then, a line of racing luminaries, human and equine, have been based here. Matt Dawson trained a series of brilliant horses at Heath House in the second half of the 19th century, perhaps the most famous being St Simon. Attached to Heath House in those days was Fred Archer, champion jockey from the era, in much more recent times, Sir Mark has registered endless notable feats of his own. To list but a few, Spindrifter, winning no less than 13 races as a two-year-old in 1980. Fall in Line, triumphing six times between January the 26th and February the 7th in 2004. And that extraordinary achievement of sending out Masafi to win seven races in 17 days in July 2004. Group 1 high days with Heath House stars such as Pivotal, Alborada and Confidential Lady, Sir Mark's first classic winner, 2006. And last month saw the 50th anniversary of his first ever winner, Belle Royale at Teesside. Park. It has been a truly amazing racing life. George and Charlie, we have this privileged access to Sir Mark's experiences. What shall we ask him first, Charlie? What shall we ask? God, oh, this could be a very, very long pod because uh, I don't know where to start. I want to know how, after as many years as you've been training, you are still going with unbelievable zest. I see you bounce out on the heath every day, much to Paul Williams' disappointment. Yes, Paul Williams, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, there, I get... I, there isn't a week go by where I don't have a runner ran badly. I get an owner miserable on the other line and I think, you know, what on earth am I doing? I'm going to hand it all in. Well, yes, I'm very lucky. I, I don't know how I find it as interesting because I've this is my 52nd lot of yearlings, and um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know how a relatively intelligent person can can still find it interesting. But I think it's like being a schoolmaster. I think it's the class of, and some most are pretty stupid, and one or two will be very bright, and and there's the fascination in trying to get the best out of them. And my competition has always been with myself and not the other trainers to do better with the same number of horses every year than I did the year before. So my competition is entirely with myself to improve improve what I've done the year before. So, And for those of us that don't, don't know listening to this, you don't train a large number of horses. You've had the same number of horses for 50. the duration. Yeah. And that is roughly 50? 65 in total in the, on the books. Yeah. And, and 50 in at a time, really. Yeah. 
And is that here and Osborne totals? Yes, the, is those, there's 19 in the little yard and there's 31 in the main yard. So you'd be rotating a few in and out? So well, I've got like 12 turned out at yeah. the moment and I've got four trotting for various things yeah. and two off injured and that's my 65. I'm not full here at the moment. I'm very seldom full. It's amazing how... That's so extraordinary. Very, you'd think 65 would always fill... 50 boxes but they don't yeah this one's turned out and some rather one. high profile owners have asked you to train horses and you've very politely <laughs> declined yes uh yes i have but i've always been happy with the numbers i've got so during the glory years there was just that one year where i turned down 60 yearlings Sixty yearlings. Sixty from. yearlings. I and so, Mark, what is it about obviously the, the this number of horses that you find so attractive and that's worked so well for it you? It was pure luck. It's all I've got the room for, and I found it kept me flat out and irritated, and and uh, most of the time, you know. And I think interestingly, as stables have got so much bigger, most people divide them into multiples of fifty. So when you talk to the big trainers. Most of them have got a headman for around 50, you know, that's about... I think it's about as much as one man can do just himself. Sure. Otherwise, you've got to delegate more. And I suppose I didn't really fancy delegating. And uh, I, en I enjoyed that number. And it meant I could train for who I liked, because I could fill the place. And I could employ who I liked. And uh, so I've had a, a, as an enjoyable time training as, as you can, really. Yeah. Could you give a, a sense of the history uh, of the stable, which I know that you have preserved in some unique <laughs> ways? Um, I'm thinking about St Simon, among yeah. uh, other memorabilia here. Give us an idea of what someone who might walk out into Heath House could see and strike them as interesting. Well, um, you know, as you say, Frampton trained here, so it's been a training yard since. It was only in 1861 that the first trainer became licensed. So when you come in the yard, there's all the plaques and it tells you how long they trained here, and uh, Tommy Hogg died in my bedroom, and uh, <laughs> all sorts of useless things like that. And then St Simon was trained here, of course, who was voted in the millennium the greatest racehorse in history, amazingly by the blood horse in America. You would have thought they'd have had swaps, or you would have thought they would have... But it was St Simon, and his skin is here, and his picture is there. Um, and uh, Donovan won more prize money than any horse until Never Say Die, when you think that was the century before. It took 53 years for another horse to win more money. So they were all trained here, and, um, and Fred Archer was apprenticed here, of course, and when you came in on the, the, the back, uh, there's that little bell and the, the sort of annex at the end, and that was Mrs Matt Dawson's Sunday school and the bell was to get the children to come to school and uh, Archer had to come the Sunday before he committed suicide because he married her the niece and and he had to come to Sunday school even when he was champion jockey <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's full of history and I've tried to sort of modernize it it's got a treadmill it's got a swimming pool it's got a covered ride rubber floors all those sort of things but I've tried to uh, do it so that uh, if Archer and Matt Dawson came back, they could still find their way round. Your so, kitchen's very modern, Sir Mark. Yes, very every woman, everyone. You must never let your wife see it, Mr. <laughs> Fellows, because <laughs> she will want a kitchen like that for Micah, 
lino, baked beans, uh, a pump that works, yeah. nice stone basin, just what you want. And would you would you would you be a would you, you strike me from from just from seeing your horses immaculately turned out and. Would you be a sort of a creature of habit in, in your everyday life as well? I mean, have you had the same routine throughout that? You know, oh, yes, with the kitchen absolutely, and everything's absolutely. laid out. I noticed, uh, was it breakfast? Is yeah, ready the, the egg's ready for tomorrow. Everything's... And you like to eat, I know, this is, I was, you like to eat the same thing? Yes, no, we don't like variety. We don't like change at Heath House, other than upgrading the place. And what... Cold baked beans? Is that yes, what, is cold, out of the tin, yes, for lunch. Out of the tin? Yes. Save washing up? Save washing up. The whole meal takes 11 minutes to prepare eat and wash up and so mark is it i, I just remember do you have a, you have the same coffee cup or something that you use? yes always and is it true the alarm goes off here at 3 50 a.m yes 3:50. Yeah. do you yeah every day yeah and and do you have a snooze in the afternoon yes if i can yeah and I, it, I, I find that crucial to Absolutely my day. Absolutely crucial. And I'm asleep in seconds. Yeah. And the battle is to see the weather forecast at, at 1.30. And if she starts off, 1.27, if she starts off with Scotland, I've missed it. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> She's got to start at East Anglia, otherwise I'm, I'm gone. So that, that sleep starts, and how long, I'm interested in this sleep thing, it's always something that I've played with, 20 minutes, I think. 40 winks. 40 minutes. 40 minutes. But 40 if minutes possible. I wake up, I'm exhausted. Yeah. I find it's like goes over the threshold yeah. and I want to try and sleep a bit longer. No, 40 winks is 40 best. winks, yeah. Unfortunately, Makes when sense. people come at an inconvenient time like you, I only had 20 today. Okay. But 40 is the optimum. And will you retire to your bedroom or will you no, do no. the snooze in front of the fire? There. Yeah. So just for everyone was sat in, would you call this a snug or a drawing room? This, this, sitting is, the room? Sitting room. this sitting is the room. sitting room. Yeah, we're sitting in this yeah. beautiful sitting room with... It's hard sporting to sporting memorabilia, sporting memorabilia. Lots of wonderful horses stood up immaculately in much the same place in the in the yard, and books and statues and greyhounds, and it's just full of chickens and boxes and. Let, let's just uh, add to that. I think that print over there is Trevor that is Trevor Frampton. That is Frampton. So that's Frampton. And he would have liked me, I think, because if you notice, he's got a gamecock on his desk and a greyhound at his feet. So he was a. He was a proper man, I think. A man of, uh, a man of country <laughs> pursuits and yeah, sports. Yeah. And I'm looking around, there's a few law books, some art books. Would that be a bit a of everything? Yeah. The Prescott Heritage? Yes, the law and, the, and, um, and art are the two things I'm really interested in. It is an extraordinarily atmospheric room. I, can't, I, I could sit in here for hours, chaps, but I know we've got time to use. And while we're talking about history, you're actually, and you alluded to it there, a very modern trainer in that I believe you were the first to introduce a covered ride. I was the first to scope. That was the most. I love that. Scope. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, that's a I real was, legacy, that. Yeah, first the to first scope, scope a horse. And the other thing I'm proud of or, is the Monty Roberts rug, which I invented and not Monty. And uh, Monty was here. <laughs> it was here, but I invented it because of the Picador's rug. I got this horse, and every time he went in, he used to do that, oh, you know. And Monty was over, and we gave him a thousand quid to get this horse in the store. And uh, he took him down to, um, uh, he had him there for a week, uh, down near High Wycombe. And I came back from the bullfights, my Easter weekend always is at the bullfights, and went to see this horse and Monty uh, down at Aston Upthorpe, I think it was the stud. And I can't tell you what he could get that horse to do. I've never given anyone a thousand quid more welcome in my life. 
The horse, he opened the box door, the horse followed him into the covered ride. It then cantered round the covered ride that way. Then he stood and waved it and it went the other way. He then walked over to the stalls. It followed him through loose and took it back in the box. I gave him a thousand quid. <laughs> you are a genius. So we brought the horse back here. And we took him in the stall <laughs> straight over the top of me. <laughs> All I saw was his girth. Boom, right? He went straight over the top of me. So I rang up Monty, who's on his way to the airport. I said, you've got a thousand quid of mine, you've stolen off me. <laughs> so so he, was, he was really good. He said, well, I've got to go, but I will come back. And he came back and we could not get this beast in. It went galloped over the top of him as well. And then we took it up to Mr. Cecil's stalls. And that had no, his practice stalls had no foot for the jockey. You know where the jockeys rest their feet? Yeah. He'd walk through there, absolutely. So it dawned on us that what he hated wasn't the gates in front, not the gates behind, but he was a very big horse, the feeling on his... on him. So, pick a horse rider. You saw the photograph of that horse with the bull. And so we, we made a New Zealand rug and we stitched on it more and more carpets. Put him in the stall, stood like a rock out, he went... Absolutely fine. So um, anyway, Jerry Scott, we thought the big thing is to get the right starter. Jerry Scott, who's not going to kick up a fuss. Jerry was a thoroughly good man in the Grand National. And I said, Jerry, I just got this horse. I'm just going to lay a, a rug on him. You know, you don't mind, do you? Dance? No, not at all. Anyway, we advanced with this thing. It looked like Jacob's coat of many colours with all these rug, every bit of carpet we got stitched on it. And uh, I had to be at Newmarket. It was the April meeting. Monty went to uh, Warwick. The horse very nearly won, flew out and finished fourth. The Monty Roberts rug. Oh, I always say to Monty, you fucking old villain. <laughs> <laughs> because I've got no chance. It's always going to be the Monty Roberts rug. But, yeah. but that and scoping, I think, are the only two things I've sort of contributed, really. And the, just a quick, the, 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 how did the scoping... How did the scoping there was scoping? a very bright vet down at uh, the Animal Health Trust um and uh he and i kept on i had horses that were wrong all year and so on mike burrell he was called and he, they just started to scope human beings little short scope and i felt that respiratory disease was the single most important factor in training young racehorses the control of it and we had no idea how to but he knew enough that antibiotics might be helpful. Um, and none of the vets, two practices in Newmarket, would scope one. They said it was invasive. And we got hold of a longish one from Adam Brooks. And we started to scope the horses once a month. And the Prescott theory was that these horses were all clean on the studs, fresh air and everything. And then they're mixed up like school children. Uh, children come in from all over and they pick up all the viruses then and they're left afterwards with bacterial which clings which clings on so mike and i you can't believe it we were groping for it we went down and scoped a whole lot of dartmoor ponies that had never been in their lives that took some doing when they had that round up there we got them there and doped them and and, and we did six of them now were they clean or were they dirty Clean as a bell. No, I'm going to say dirty. 
No, clean. They should be clean. I think clean. You're at, they should be clean. Yeah. Absolutely filthy. Like like chocolate <laughs> it was. Yeah. That chocolate. So that. it complete <laughs> my theory was blown out the water straight away. Really? We tramped all the way down there. They're absolutely filthy. We nearly killed ourselves scoping. And um, so anyway, that was wrong. But we were just grasping it and in the end we got very good at it and then of course other people started to catch up but i got about 10 years when virtually nobody was scoping when was and this we were what, 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 80s 82 85 ahead of the game well yeah we were about 10 12 years ahead and will you just uh, tell us about the exchange between you and mr uh, pipe, and Martin yeah. pipe well the whole thing was fascinating because What's so interesting is how quickly the great trainers pick up on anything that's happening, you know. And um, when I built the covered ride, which was just before the scoping, covered rides, I think, 35 years old, I think. You know, and which was a gigantic... Nobody had built one like that at the time. It was a hell of a fuss, you can imagine. Newmarket was up in arms. When the staunch had started going up, everybody had a seizure. And, uh, and when I built it, I then had a nightmare... The clearest nightmare of my life was that I built this and it cost a fortune and we were going to get the horses in for the first day and none of them would go in. Yeah. <laughs> I had this absolutely clear dream uh, that we had... Oh, and when the great day came, they all went in except for the hack who had to be reversed in, but, <laughs> but the rest of them all went in. Anyway, so we built the ride and Michael Dickinson rang up and he was breaking every record known to National Hunt trainers. Uh, first six home in the Grand in the in the Gold Cup that came a bit later, but I I think he just had thirteen winners on a Boxing Day, thirteen oh, winners on a Boxing Day, and he was absolutely dominating the thing, you see. And um, Michael rang up and said, "I hear you built this covered ride. Could I come down and take the measurements?" So I said, "Of course you can. I'd love to have you down." But I said, "If you're going to have a snoop round Heath House." I'd like to have a look round Harewood, you see. So he said, oh, no, I don't pray not. I said, well, please your fucking self then. <laughs> so he said, all right. <laughs> so, so, so he came down, had a look round, and uh, was marvellous, thoroughly enjoyed having him. He took everything down. And I went up to Harewood, and they gave me the most wonderful time. Monica and Tony were alive and fascinating people and he, of course, had an exceptional eye for racehorses. Monica was a tyrant for discipline and ridden all those point-to-point -point winners. I mean, they were phenomenal. And as I drove back, I thought to myself that if you're going to be champion national hunt trainer, I know nothing about national hunt racing, but what you must do is lots of long work, not much fast work, lots of road work, uh, feeding is absolutely vital, and feed them individually, you know? I've got it. So by the time I got back home, I was happy I could identify what National Hunt Trainer needed to do. So anyway, Michael went on breaking all the records and then we started scoping. And very soon, I mean, three years, while we were only just getting the hang of it, the phone rang and it was Daddy Pipe, Martin's father. I hear you started the scoping, you know, we were wondering if we could come up and so on. I said, sure. You know, we're only we were only doing it once a month, so we weren't really doing it very well. But they wanted to come, and I said, "Sure, come up and have a look round." And we do it on a Monday, you know. But if you're going to have a day at Heath House, I'd like to have a snoop round Pond House. You see, Nickel Shane. Well, they were really secretive at the time. Martin said, "Good Lord, no, no." He said, "Well, please your fucking self then." So anyway, they came up, and I went down and had a wonderful time. 
down at Little Shane, and it was when they were rewriting the record books. Now they were beating even Mr. Dick, Michael Dickinson's, and um, it became clear to me after a day there that if you're going to be champion trainer and rewrite all the record books, you must never trot on the roads, never do long <laughs> counters, feed them all exactly the same. <laughs> so, so what do you get from that? You're two young, very successful trainers. What could you construe from that? Because in the end, I think I distilled how it is, that, that what, what I got out of it. What would you get out of that, Charlie, that they're doing it so differently? There's many different ways to to come about the same result. Exactly, but I refined it a little bit more, and I may be talking complete rubbish, but I refined it to it doesn't matter what you do, as long as your method gets them very, very fit, they are very, very healthy, and you don't drive them mad. That's all. It doesn't matter. As long as they're very fit, they're very healthy, and they're not bonkers. None of None of their horses were mad. You, you, they set off very well. They, um, you know, they they seem to be content in their work. Nothing jig jogging. You would have thought Martin Pipes would make them, but I suppose they did plenty of work with them. Yeah. So would that make sense or not? Yeah. No, no, it does make, makes perfect sense. I've had two runners over hurdles. One pulled up and one. Uh, one finished about seventh, blew up with about two hurdles to go. So yeah, I'm sure you're absolutely right. But but I, I think the lesson for all of us is that it, you, we probably pay too much attention to method. It's the end result of having them fit and. I think health health is just health. As it is well. They're a different it's animal just, when they're healthy. Yeah, aren't they? You you run one, uh, has a hard race. It's healthy. It comes back, shakes its head. It's absolutely fine. You you run one and they're not quite at that. It's hiding in the box or it's walked round in the night. or isn't yeah. They're a different animal, aren't they? And there's nothing that... I mean, if I really want to get in a good mood, mm. the best, best medicine for that is scope a couple after a work morning. And they're clean. Crystal clear yeah. washes afterwards. Yeah. And you, re you know yeah. they're in a good place. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Talking about shaking one's head... It's something that I picked up, spoke to you, I think, a few years ago, and you've had huge success in backing horses up. Running them quickly. Running yeah. them quickly and, and racking up a sequence, sequence of, um, of wins. And um, it's very, I remember talking to you and asking you if there were any sort of, not necessarily secrets to this, this sort of form of, of training, but any things that you should look for. And that was one thing that you said to me was that yeah, I, he shakes his head I in the morning, a, you can go again. Well, he had a horse called Masafi and he won seven in 17 days. And he went all over Britain. He went to Southall and he went to Brighton and he went to, it was extraordinary. And every time I used to think that's enough for him, you know, that's his fourth or fifth or whatever it was, you see. And then I'd, I'd jog him up in the morning and he'd just toss his head like that. i said, off you go. <laughs> <laughs> and when he won the seventh, he didn't shake his head after that. <laughs> but, but every time before, he shook his head. And the other thing is that I think I said to Mr Scott was, when I've got one on a busy schedule, he goes out exactly the same time every day. I don't do that business of leaving him for third lot for a pick of grass. He sticks to his routine. And then they eat up and they think they're back in there. I think it's a great mistake to... Um, no, I don't think it's a great mistake. I think it doesn't work as well. Um, even if you turn them out of something. If he's not part of his life, if he's really busy, he wants to stick to his... Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you feel like a, a first lot horse 
can be kind of seriously disrupted mentally by then, as you say, coming back some and going them. even third lot, for some example. Of them, yeah. Some of them. Some of them. I do try and keep them yeah. if I can. You, you, we all yeah. know you can't, but most of the time I try and keep them at their at their standard time. Those, those beastly, like the trainer, like the trainer. Yeah. <laughs> those beastly people from the BHA are doing everything they can to stop you to be able to run up these sequences yes. and they've changed all the rules yeah. and all this. It's not yeah. very nice of them, is it? Well, no, but it, I suppose it, I, I think it's made racing fairer but bo but boring. But more boring. I think the public loved it when it you were... great story, Every now and again you got one on a roll and yeah. they loved it, you know. Safi yeah. went from As long 52, as it's not too often, yeah. From 52 to 92 in that month of July 2004, went he, up yeah. 40 pounds. Mm. He must have been the biggest certainty ever to be... The, the very interesting, the very interesting thing is that the, the first record breaker I had was a horse called Spindrifter. And he was extraordinary before nobody thought he won more races than any horse since the bard a hundred years before in a season uh you know he was just extraordinary two-year-old he wasn't and the extraordinary achievement his and to a degree i suppose ours was that in the free handicap having won all those races what weight do you think he had in the free handicap uh, i do i got i mean nothing 713 did he just placing him could get, so it was a tremendously exciting thing and then we'd had this bet with the bookmaker that he'd win 10 and the bookmaker then tried to pay half when he got to nine it was it was very exciting times played out in public this yes or? I don't think the bet was but the rest was yeah of course um, and in, in the end he started to pay people to run against me. <laughs> So it got really quite narky, you know. He died a few years ago now, but he, he was around for a long time. And what was different about the rules back then that enabled a horse to do that? There were these two-year-old races where um, they were only opened horse, not won a race value 2,500. And all, he won 13 of those condition races. <laughs> And there was no penalty, no penalty system. system or anything no, like that. That was no. it. As long as here. Yeah. <laughs> you must. <laughs> and he went off like a bullet, and he kept with this fellow, this poor bookmaker. That he won the ten races in about six weeks. Yeah, so the poor deal. fellow had to pay. And over what he was having a seizure. What sort of what distance was he running over? Six and seven. Six, six and seven. five, six and seven. He won at Hamilton over five, and, and after that it was six. Rock hard ground that year. Not so many watered tracks. Yeah. Small fields. And make, would he train? make all, make all. Yeah. Would he canter in between these runs? Obviously, just one every day. Just one every day. Yeah, and one every day, and then back. Um, but so he was the first one, and um, so you'd got that gap. And then I had a, a mare called Misty Halo. She won twenty-five on the flat, which is a record wow. last century. That's, that's uh, a post-war record and from that, That's a post-war record, and she that's won 25. And she only used to win a length and a half, two. She never got in a struggle. Oof. She'd either go wing past them or, or that was that, you know. What level did she get to? Um, I suppose she was winning off, I suppose, 85 in those days. Elaine Mella used to ride her all the time in those ladies' races. How funny. Yeah, she used to go, go ping. Um, so she was a, a great spinner. And then there was those handicappers. So for a while you had a little wheeze to get in front of everybody, but it's getting harder and harder. The other one that year, you had two in 2004, because Fall in Line 
Oh won yeah, that's six times in the space of a fortnight. He won six in a fortnight, and that's when they changed the rule. We rather overdid it, probably with <laughs> Masafi, with Masafi and him. I think we probably overrated it. So can you not do that anymore? And no, if, no, if, no, no. Did you identify both of those horses quite a long way in advance? And yeah, just well, say this is what we're going to do to the owners. This is how we're going to play it. Certainly, we did with Spindrift from Masafi. Uh, Masafi is very interesting in that he was. Um, his granddam was a sister to Spindrifter. Really? Isn't that extraordinary? extraordinary yeah. They were 15 years apart, but that toughness was in them. And they were both bred by Joe Crowley, Aidan's father-in-law. And it, more fascinating, when Spindrifter was trying to beat the record, the record was held by Nagwa, who was trained by Barry Hills. And Spindrifter's mother and Nagwa's mother were in the same field in Ireland. Isn't that an extraordinary coincidence? And Joe Crowley bred them, bred them both. And the fascinating thing with Joe was that his, he bred all these wonderful horses, Rock of Gibraltar, and he bred all these wonderful horses. And the system was very simple. He had eight or nine, ten mares. And there used to be a young stallion at stud. He'd go around and say, what price to cover all ten? So there was no ped <laughs> there was no pedigrees, really? no no none of that waste of time split pedigrees. They cover the whole lot. So one year they were all by Persian Bold, the next year they were all by Salmon Lee, the next year they were all by. And all he did was breed winners, and the rest of us are tearing our hair out over the big breed is a splash of this and a dash of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. So, will is there scope for another fall in line or Masafi, or do the rules now? I think it's those? nearly finished. Oh, we had also won six last year, but it's nearly and the year before. But it, it's it's much harder. You've got it? that lovely horse on a roll at the moment. Was he Carab Carab Carabino? Carabino. Yeah, he had a good run. Yeah, he had a good run. Uh, but it's it's just all changed. You know, when you think when I started. There were no starting stalls. Uh, women couldn't um, have a license to train. Uh, you came down the high street after working racecourse side. Uh, everybody went to church. We had stable Sunday, all the all the church all decorated with all the trainers' colours and rugs. And Mr. War here and all the lads went. All fifteen walked behind him down to the to church. Uh, the, the apprentices used to have to write home every weekend if they couldn't write I used to write the art, write for them to their parents um, uh, then we had the three day week imagine now with no electricity in the middle of winter on alternate days no electricity at all not one, not one flicker on alternate days well, that went on and on and on and then those big freeze ups uh, we didn't have any racing from the day after Boxing Day to two days before Cheltenham. No. We, were, we were on the straw bed here for eight weeks, trotting round. Absolute misery it was. And and if if we had that type of weather roll through now, obviously you could got, get out. You we could, would get out nowadays. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but in those was, days, nobody had a covered ride. No, of course. Um, and um, uh, Ted Leader, who'd won the Grand National on Sprig, he trained at Sefton Lodge, and he left them in for the whole time and we got out every day and Mr War of course was absolutely you know rigid looked round Christmas Eve with all the rug Christmas Day with all the rugs off no messy and um, he uh, said that's no way to train boy you know when Mr Leader left them in and we finished had a good two-year-old that year finished second in the Stuntley Maiden which used to be the first maiden of the year at Newmarket and we finished second in I never dared point out to him but 
in the winner's enclosure was one of Mr. Leaders, and we knew it hadn't been out the box for eight weeks. <laughs> I thought I'd better just gloss over that. <laughs> I never summoned up the courage to tell him. And and it's not it's not just um, all these horses you've trained. You you have a starring cast of assistant trainers. And well, they've been very good. Your most late your most latest success story is the wonderful Henry Henry de Bromhead, who spent. How many years did he spend? Two. With you? They all Just spent two, two years. Yeah. Everybody had two. You must Everybody be enormously proud of, 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 of course, well, lots well, of them. I but am. this year was, ex- you know, Henry's amazing. extraordinary. This year and. Uh, when he worked for me, everybody called him Poor Henry because I was so horrible to him. <laughs> <laughs> poor Henry. They say, how's Poor Henry, you know? <laughs> and, of course, he's done so unbelievably well. And I, he's got a horse that I had last year. She won five called Lismore. And uh, he's got her now for the Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. And he rang up just before she... Uh, well, the other day, and he just had the Cheltenham successes. And I said to uh, Henry, I said, all these wonderful interviews, Henry, you know, marvellous success, and even uh, even O'Brien hasn't won so many races. And so I said, I- I'm sure it's on the tip of your lips, but I just haven't heard how all this success was due to your two years at Heath House. I mean, <laughs> you know. Uh, so Henry said, well... He paused for a bit. He said, well, when I was with you, I said, when were you with me? He said, well, I was with you when you had your very best years. You had Spindrift, you had um, Pivotal, and you had Last Second. And to tell you the truth, I always thought it was me that... (laughs) (laughs) I said, Henry, that's never crossed my mind. Yeah. I, I, I remember you telling me a story about a f- French trainer who oh, yes. you, who sent you someone in... Christophe Erland. That was it, yes. And Christophe was sent to me by Pascal Barry. And Pascal had been with me for two years. And he's got a very quiet voice, Pascal. And uh, I think Christophe had been a bit of trouble, but shown a bit of talent. And so uh, Pascal said, I've got, would I have him? So anyway, Christophe arrived. So I rang... Pascal in the afternoon. I said, now then, Pascal, this uh, Christophe's arrived. What am I to do with him, you see? And Pascal said, I wish you to be as horrible to him as you were to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, well, I'm not as horrible as I used to be, Pascal. He said, you must try very hard. <laughs> Others that have been here includes William Haggis and Simon Crisford. S- Simon Crisford, William Haggis, David Loder, uh, uh, David Loder, um, Christian Wall, um, James um, Ferguson, James Ferguson, <laughs> um, the yeah, and yeah. and uh, you know that what's interesting is that they've all become good, but when they came, there was something that they perhaps were not so good at. I mean. Uh, we know William was Haggis was a walking form book immediately. He understood racing from top to bottom. But the horse side of it, to start with, that was his his bit. Simon Crisford probably um, I got him the job on the Racing Post, and then with Sheikh Mohammed, uh, and probably at that time he would not have been outgoing enough to be a public trainer, starting with nothing. Do you see what I mean? But he was. He knew how to, he instantly knew how to get on with everybody, how to speak to everybody. Everybody liked him, but he was perhaps a little bit diffident at that stage. So, you know, you've tried, and dear Henry de Bromhead won't mind me saying that the first time I left him to change about six boxes, I gave Henry a list. 
and you know this one moves into that box and so on you know and I think Henry thought oh, bollocks to this we can do it easier and we had about nine horses out simultaneously without a box for them to go in and I rushed out what is happening <laughs> <laughs> so poor would poor you be Henry. a shouter would you like to would you raise your voice or would it be a uh, quiet much. ticking no, off uh, quiet normally quiet so um dear Chris Christian always says that he came to me he'd been with Barry Hills and uh, Barry he'd had a bit more responsibility there and I, I said to him a few years ago what was the worst day at Heath House and he said oh the first day apparently because I said to him you know go and take the horse's temperature in number 19 and of course Christian came by and I said what was that horse's temperature and Christian said it was all right I said all right, I said, you tell me what it fucking well is and I'll tell you if it's fucking well all right. <laughs> <laughs> that is green saying all right, though. <laughs> Mr Hills would have been quite a, a challenging he'd be very master. He'd be very, very difficult. But when I was with Jack Waugh, um, this shows you how good he was. He was on the phone in the office. I was leading a yearling down the yard and the window opened and a voice said, take that in and take its temperature. So I took the horse in, took its temperature. When he came out, what was its temperature? 103, I've left him tied up, Governor. He said, I can see more on the phone 50 yards away than you can leading the horse. You've got a long way to go. Was that in the first few weeks, months? Of yeah, fairly life? early. <laughs> but he survived. Um, but but he could I... do it. He could do it. And he used to blindfold me on a Sunday and Jack Button, the head man, would get three horses out and I was allowed to feel their front legs and I had to tell him which horse it was. I once got two wrong and he left me blindfolded, walked past Jack Button and he said, train never. <laughs> He could do it. I'm sure that rings in here. He could do it. It, it. One person has remained constant throughout, well, for a long time. And you'd say normally two years with yeah. you, but one person has managed to cling on <laughs> William. Uh, much longer than others in William Butler, who has become taking a bigger and bigger role in the yes. yard. And, I mean, you know, William... I mean, Mr War virtually gave me the place. Yeah. And I've always felt that I should do the same and because um, I haven't got a family and William was immediately as good if not better than any other one I've had he probably wouldn't have had the chance of training much otherwise so he seemed to be the man however depressing news for William the other day was that Jim Bulger 79 training a classic winner <laughs> and that nice article which I pointed out to him about these trainers training classic winners when they're 83 and 84 did you see it so I've cut that out for him just just in case he and you you, you still wake up in the mornings with the same enthusiasm I mean obviously I, do. It's I obvi don't know why you do you do it's I don't amazing. know why I don't know why but I do and I've, yeah. I've thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it. it's been endlessly fascinating and just try and do it a bit better, don't you? Of course. I do, I do, just sorry, I do listen. And also, I just love the fact that you, with the, back to the other your trainers, you're highlighting the, the newspaper every I'm, morning. All, my, not all mine I to highlight in the newspaper. All my ex-trainers. Oh, do you? All of them. The only Go thing I the mark off is, I always mark off Christopher and or any, anybody who's been with me. So you'll follow. I love them having winners. Of course, they love beating me and they forget that if I've got to be beaten, I'd far rather be beaten by them than anybody else. 
And b- before we let you go, because you've been more than generous with your time, I want two more sto- well, two more stories off you. Number one, both George and I constantly get harassed by Mr. Haggis on the Heath, so we have absolutely no <laughs> loyalty to him whatsoever. But there is a very funny story about him when he was your assistant and being woken up. Yes, he, he sleeping was, in. He was. He was. It, it is true too, and. and uh, he he was um, he hadn't been here very long when he came. I always say to everybody when they come, the one thing you can't be is late. You cannot cannot be late. I've never been late for work in my life ever. So I don't care if the car breaks down. There's absolutely no excuse you can't be late for work. You can never tell me a lie. Never get cross with a horse, and you and I'll get on fine. You know those are the three things. So anyway, so William said absolutely so. You know don't worry and so on. So anyway, about the third or fourth day. William's late, you see. No William. So I said to the assistant trainer, who I wonder who it was then, I said to the assistant, because he was pupil, I said to the assistant, go and wake up that fucking William, will you? So, of course, we're just about to pull out, and William, with a lovely smile, comes running down the yard. <laughs> and he said, I said, William, William. <laughs> so I said, now then, William, you've been here four or five days, you're now late. I've never been late in my life. I'm not a mathematician, but I think it's about 3,600 days before you can be late again, all right? So, <laughs> rely on me, said William, so off he went. <laughs> so the very next day, the very, very next day, he's late, you see. So I said to the assistant trainer, I said, you drive me down and I'll wake him up. So anyway, he drove me down. He's in one of those terraced houses there. And I tried to get in the front, and I couldn't get in, you know. So I've got to go around the back. And it's quite hard to work out from the back which number 92 is, or 33, or whatever it is. So I clambered over this garden gate, eased up this window, and there's a, a, uh, there's a basin there, kitchen, you know. I eased up the window. Absolutely immaculate, clean basin and everything. And then there's a woman stood with her back to the wall <laughs> in a hairnet. <laughs> I should have known it was so clean, you see. Anyway, I said, does William Haggis live here? So she said, no, he does not. So I reversed out over the tap. So I'm now getting cross because I'm really late. Over the next gate, over the next fence, you see, into the hat. Eased up the window and I'm in the right spot. There's an absolutely filthy mountains of congeal washing up. You've never seen so much dirt in your life. Eventually get through, pick up a saucepan, and I can hear a perpetual alarm going up the stairs. So I creep up these stairs. And halfway up the stairs, there's a little bedroom off there with the alarm going, you see. I look in and there's a little figure, dark hair, fast asleep against the wall on a camp bed. So I just twisted round the back of his T-shirt and back of his head. And I smacked his head on the wall as hard as I could. I said, you idle little bastard. Come round. I'd never seen the fucker before in my life. (laughs) (laughs) And his head's going on. (laughs) So so I said, where's William fucking next door? (laughs) So, So I shot off next door. In the window, by now I'm absolutely raging. In I got, I've got the soup thing of water, rushed up the stairs. There's William Farson, bang on the top of his head. <laughs> and he was never late again. He never was. Fear is a wonderful, wonderful, <laughs> best alarm clock. Yeah. That's so, so, uh, so it is true. It is true. But uh, the fellow. I, I mean, there's all sorts of legends. I, I don't know who the fellow was. Uh, there was. There was a strong rumour that it was a, a 
leading. Uh, well, it's it supposed to be some great, great figure, but I yeah. don't. I don't yeah, I've right. never seen the fellow before in my life. So. Okay. I t- I, as I said, I think I wrote to you recently, and just after having a similar conversation with you a few weeks ago, and it's just the admiration for not just the horses, but the people that you've helped. Yes, and which and is the, great. That you can see great. the genuine. You know, pride. satisfaction, pride in, yeah, in, in their work. Yeah, I love them well. I yeah. really um, love them. And that, I think that takes a serious, a real character to know your, know, you know, know your own work and also appreciate. One of the winners, uh, if I could, that nothing to do with me. If you could have, uh, when William Haggis won the Derby with that horse, I can't even remember its name. Charmit. I watched it in the uh, in the uh, stable yard at Haydock, and I've I've never enjoyed a winner of my own as much. Really? Yeah, because he wasn't doing great then. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Um, and he'd done everything right. It had got ringworm and he hadn't run it at York. And, and then it won. Fuck. Every stride of the race I'd ridden, yeah. That's lovely. It's, you know, it's, it's great. And I'm sure there are a huge number of trainers out there who would um, credit a lot of their success down to Bits their Bits and pieces, here. I hope, yeah. yeah. I think they nearly all have enjoyed it. Of course, Chrisford and, and Loder, when they get together, I had them similar at the same time. How any training career could, I always say to them, could, could, could survive having Simon as assistant and David as pupil. They worked here together. Together, you they see. Did they really? And they together. became great friends. And they became Life great friends, friends yeah. yeah. And and David used to steal the biscuits out the out the <laughs> kitchen. And Simon was so terrified he used to put them back. He used to buy them. <laughs> <laughs> Have you changed, do you think, over the you say that I'm not days? as bad tempered. I'm not as bad tempered, yeah. You know, I think you get to stage when, you know, it's not not it's not worth it. Sure. Yeah, a terrible tear about something. I think that's the only compensation for being older. And no cigars. Yeah. Do you still miss your cigars? No, no not no. at all. Really? No, I gave up. If I'd known how easy it was, I'd have given up years before. The the cushions here say real men smoke, smoke cigars. cigars. Yeah. And the other one, if I, I, I can't, can't smoke, smoke in, cigar in heaven, I'm not going to go. But you've given up. I have, but um, and you say it was easy? I feel I feel guilty having given up because I I felt I'd left let down all the other smokers giving in to the do gooders, you know. The the part of gas was it? This yeah, time? lovely. Oh. And and you stopped three four years ago, would it be? Four, four or five, yeah. And you said it was easy after being it a was, lifelong committed. It was. It was. It was easy because I think you're probably not addicted to cigars. They haven't got much nicotine. You're more addicted to fiddling with things yeah yeah the matchstick you see i think that it was dead easy it was dead easy you used to smoke didn't you yeah i haven't smoked for a year and has it been hard or not yeah um it's the nicotine Mm. i have i sometimes have uh these nick and nicotine um it's 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 like it's it's mainly the build-up to big races yeah and big moments Mm. that's when i like i don't know why i crave a cigarette but it hasn't been hard, but I, I'm glad I, to have given I, the, up. The only cigar I missed was entry night. Doing that, I do all my entries on a Tuesday. Do you, yeah, do, you do that system or not? No. I, I do. I, I do. I'm four weeks ahead, right, so I okay. do all the entries on yeah. a Tuesday, and then I knock them out as we go. Yeah. Because it, the discipline is that you're thinking four weeks ahead, yeah. and you realise that there's no races that week for. So you you know. Yeah. Um, so I've got this rather complicated system and Tuesday night is absolutely sacred and uh, I missed it then 
But that was all. That was all. Because I did. Uh, I used to live with James when he was your. He used to have to do it. He used to have to do it all. Oh, yeah, he used to have to do the coming right thing. endless. Yeah, yeah. Into a book. Yeah, that's right. He used to give me the shit. And when I, I, I refined that from Jack War, because my famous first day here, um, I, Jack Leach, who wrote that book, mm. uh, came to stay with my parents. Um, and because he was having an affair with the doctor's wife in Newmarket, who was known as Midnight Mary. <laughs> and they needed a safe. They needed a safe house to go to. Uh, my stepfather, who's a marvelous chap, had taken her out when he was at Cambridge. So they said, "Let's go and see him." You see, and I'd just come out of hospital, having broken my back. And uh, Jack Leach came back to Newmarket, saw Jack War on the heath. Uh, Jack War said, "I'm not feeling so good." And Jack Leach said, "Have you thought of assistant? Because I saw just a man the uh, last week." So that's how I got the job here. How lucky can you be? So I came up to Newbury for the interview. And uh, I, he had one in the 2.30. So I waited till it had run and then went up to him and said, my name's Mark Prescott. It ran rather badly. Um, and he said, oh, what is the same? He said, come up. And he said, have a month's trial and see how you get on. OK. So I said, when would you like me to start? He said, oh, tomorrow. I'll see you at 11 o'clock. So I said, fine. So I had to drive back to Devon, get packed up, and come back here by 11 o'clock in the morning. No motorways. So I came back by 11 o'clock. I thought, fuck you, I'll show you. I can do that. So, um, and I never went back home again. Um, and anyway, we looked round evening stables. Everything was marvellous. All the boxes twisted in, all the connecting doors open. So you went in at number one and went all the way up to number 20. And then he said, now then, boy, he said, um, come in the house, would you? I thought, how nice he's going to give me a drink and, uh, you know, how lucky I am. Because I hadn't got anywhere to sleep that night. Because I got no chance, really. So I came in here. He said, have you ever done entries, boy? So I said, a little bit, when I was with Mr. Cundall. Well, he said, uh, that's last week's entry form. What was it, 30-odd meetings? Uh, this is the extract I make in pencil. You'll soon work out the hieroglyphics. That's next week's entries. Pop them on my desk 4.30 in the morning. Good night. So I went and st st stayed the night in the pub there at the foot of the, of the horseshoes. I said, all I want is a bed. I don't want food, don't want anything. I've got to get this done. And he gave me the full scat paper and he gave me the pencil and a list of the horses. And it took me till about midnight to work out the hieroglyphics. Uh, three C and G M N S A S T two, three-year-old colts and geldings, maidens at starting, not run more than twice at closing. Uh, all of those, you see. So I got a chart, and then I ruled it all off, and it looked simply marvellous. And he'd given it to me in a pencil. And then about three in the morning, I just inked in, in red barrow, the horses' names, blue barrow, the meetings. I left it on his desk in there, and fuck, he'd be pleased with me. So, so we came in from first lot, and there was three desks there, the same desk that I've got there now. He said, that's your desk, that's my desk, that's it. I sat at my desk, there's nothing on it, you see. And I could just see a pyramid of neatly arranged pyramid of 
paper, shredded paper. And worse still, I could see bits of blue barrow and bits of red barrow. <laughs> and it was all shredded up. And so I summoned up all my courage. I said to him, excuse me, sir, was there something wrong with the entries? He said, I said, do them in pencil, boy. Put them on my desk tomorrow morning at 4.30. So that was day one. But what he was showing you was you, you're not having any bright ideas. You just do as I say and we'll get on fine. And it was fantastic. But he started off, he started off as he meant to go on. Yeah. I said, do them in pencil, boy. <laughs> I rang home. I said, things not gone too well. <laughs> I, I can't leave here without asking two quick questions myself. One is, now, I understand you ring your owners every Sunday, and I've always wanted to know, how long must that take? Because you take just have a couple. It takes from 8 o'clock until 12.15, and then I get all the others that I've missed, sort of 4 till 5.30. Do you ever think and about it is changing? a labour of love, and I would never do it if I started again. But it's one of those things that because you've always done it, I st when I started I had nine owners, it was easy to do, you know. Nine owners for 50 horses, you see, it was a completely different world. You know, and that all the yearlings were trained. Uh, you know, I was, Lavington Stud is being sold now, and I can remember going down there and seeing them all broken in September. September they were all broken and cantering along that verge there all these stablemen in, in gaiters and and and, uh, and Noel Merlis there, Sir Gordon Richards and Jackie Sirrett and then I had what they didn't want and uh, and then uh, we go back and see them and I uh, this was going to Gordon, this was going to Sir Noel and so on I'd say to Lady MB um uh, so there won't be a cult, my lady, uh, to come to Heath House. So she said, Podmore, where is the Tudor minstrel? And they go, ha, ha, and out under a stinging nettle would come this thing. So thank you so much for that. I've been cowering under this stinging nettle because it was so... <laughs> so it was... Um, but it was good practice and wonderful people. Wonderful, wonderful people, you know, um, who understood horses um, and... Um, I could never have trained with, without Lady Macdonald Buchanan, you know. I mean, it's just one. The, the first winner, before you go, the, it took me ages to train a winner for them, you know. Isn't it always the way, your biggest owner, you know. And um, we had a horse called Beretta, and we sent him up to air, and, um, and thank God he won. And you had to ring them 7.30 in the evening, that was the time. So I had to stop the car, on the top of it, going along the top there, Black Douglas or somewhere. There's a telephone box on top of this mountain. Lorries going by all the time. And you had to put all the sixpences in in those days, you see. So smack on 7.30, the good news, you see. I'll stop in the telephone box, <laughs> put in all these sixpences, you see. And a voice answered, and a voice said, Cretan 232 which was the butler who was older than Lady Macdonald Buchanan and her husband put together, you know. <laughs> so I said, Mark Prescott here, who? So I said, Mark Prescott, could I speak to Lady Macdonald Buchanan? He said, I'll see if her ladyship's in the morning room. Brrr. And all more sixpences going in, you see, more lorries going by. 
her ladyship's not in the morning room. So I said, can you try one of the other rooms? So, so, so And then Sir Reginald came on, who was well into his 80s and pretty deaf, you know. And Sir Reginald came and said, hello, hello. So I said, ah, oh, Sir Reginald, it's, it's Mark Prescott. Who? So I said, Mark Prescott, who? So I said, I was assistant trainer to Mr. War. Hello, Jack, how are you? So I fucking, so I've lost ground, you know. So, so I said, Beretta, what an air. Where? Air, where? Air. He said, don't you talk to me like that and put the phone down. Oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, they've got 14 horses with me. They're going to take them all away. What does air rhyme with? You know, what can he have thought I said? It's no good ringing back. So at 10.30 on Sunday morning, I rang and thank God got Lady MB. You know, I said, oh, my lady, I'm terribly sorry, but um, Beretta won an air yesterday. And I told Sir Reginald, and I, he must have misheard me because he didn't seem very pleased and put the phone down and told me not to speak to him like that. You know, she said, oh, I wouldn't worry Mark at all. She said, I, I told him you could never have said anything like that. So I've got no idea what, <laughs> absolutely no idea what he thought I'd said. <laughs> that is fantastic. Um, I, I hope I'm not exceeding our welcome by saying lots of people have Sir Mark Prescott as their racing hero. Who is your racing hero, past and present? If you were to pick one from the past, one from... My hero when I was riding was Tim Brookshaw. Um, and uh, I, I wound up, he, the, the first time I went horse racing was at Newton Abbott and the, the old lady who'd take, who taught me to ride wouldn't take any money from the old man, he was, she was supposed to be paid but I loved it so much I was there all the time and helping out so she wouldn't, she wouldn't uh, take any money so he took her to Newton Abbott races, we went and parked by the last, uh, I was 12 and um, the very first race, I could, we couldn't, I couldn't see over the fence, you know. <laughs> and of course, you can be so close racing, can't you? Any other sport, you're miles away. But leaning on the rails, particularly in those days, you were inches from them, you know. And uh, they came hurtling into the last, and this jockey in front, Way, whack, 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 you know, and it somersaulted, poof, and it crashed down in front of me, and it brought down two more. And he was obviously dead, you know, and the horses scrambled up. He's obviously dead, you know, and I'm peering at this dead figure. And he got up very, very slowly, chucked his stick into the crowd and said, fucking hell, and walked back up the track. I thought, what a man. <laughs> I, I, I never wanted to do anything else. I never wanted to do anything else again. And when I broke my back, I went to Oswestry Orthopaedic. Eventually, I had a torrid time at Ashford. And then after about eight, nine months there, I went up to Oswestry Orthopaedic. And you now would go to Stoke Mandeville. And there was Tim Brookshaw. And I remember saying to him, it's because of you that I'm here. And, and, and he, of course, it was because of his terrible injuries and Paddy Farrell's that the Injured Jockeys Fund was started. So he, he remained a hero. So he's... He, that's why I, that's why I got the bug, and I'm very, very grateful to him. Yeah. And anyone from the racing world today that you? I admire? think I think Mr. War was a hero. Um, he was a very difficult man. Um, everybody was frightened of him. I think I'd had a very frightening father, so I wasn't as afraid of him as everybody else. But I think he was a great man. Uh, he was absolutely honest. If he said something would happen, it would happen. Uh, and he gave me 
the most fantastic chant. Um, and I think well, I started with a fellow called Sid Koenig, who's still the best horseman I've ever seen, and I include I include Monty Roberts. Sid Koenig was a genius. He was doing things with horses before anybody had ever thought of that joint up and things, you know. He, 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 um, we, used, we had eight boxes for racehorses and we had eight boxes for maniacs. And he used to advertise in horse and hand for difficult horses to break and he would only have them if somebody had failed to break them. Mm, really? Yeah, because he could That's charge right. double. Yeah. So that was the business model. Well, you lost money training racehorses, but that's what he liked, but breaking in those things. And he was simply fascinating. I can't tell you the diff different things we did with horses. Yeah. Um, we had one who, the further they'd come down, the worse behaved they were. This horse had started off in air. He wound up at Melton Mowbray, and then he t came to us. And the fellow in Melton Mowbray, his, his party trick was to chuck himself down on the ground. So as soon as you put anything on him, he chucked him on him. And wouldn't move and try and get down into the ground poor thing and when he arrived he got no skin all the way down one side of him and the fellow in Melton Mowbray had set fire to the straw under him to get him up so that shows you what they were like and uh, he came down and he got him riding in three weeks um, but he was absolutely brilliant because the first time we took him down the marsh and as soon as we put the roller on him, down he got. And uh, Mr. Curry, who's 60-odd, he said, Now, boy, you will find, without setting fire to the beast, I shall get him up. <laughs> and in his back pocket, he got a milk bottle. And he poured milk in his ear, and the horse got up. He said, There you are, boy. All you need is a pint of milk. <laughs> Simply staggering. Up it got, but the trouble was it shook its head and went down again. <laughs> so I can't tell you the fun we had. So the next thing was he used to take the water away from it. That was number one. And when they arrived, he used to shut them in a dark box at the top on peat moss, deep peat moss, and leave it in the dark. And only he would go in. And he'd leave it for two days. And then uh, the beginning of the third day, he'd go in with a skip and uh, he'd just not speak to it, walk around the box, pick up the droppings and go out. And the horse would follow him all the way around because it's desperate for a friend. It's in the dark. And no one has ever gone in and not spoken to it. Never spoke to them. Everybody else, when they'd gone into the horse, had spoken to it. So the horse was mesmerised by this little man. And then he'd go in in the afternoon, do the same, let him have a drink of water. Now he's the nice man. It's not the horrid man who's taken it away. The horse is starting to come to him. And it was all based on that. But anyway, when we got the... We couldn't get the roller on this bloody thing. So I could see him thinking. And in the box was a ladder that went up the wall. And he said to Neil, his son, who had a terrible stammer, he said, we put a, we put a cavison on the horse, went up in the loft, and we pulled him up so that his front legs are off the ground and his hind legs are touching the ground. And then we put the roller on him. Now he can't move. <laughs> So anyway, we're up there with this horse. He says, Mr. Coney says, now then, boys, he's getting used to it. <laughs> so, so, so Neil said, my fucking arms are k k killing me. So, so <laughs> Mr. Coney said, let him down, step at a time, boy. So we let him down. And as his feet touched the ground, he was gone. And he pulled us straight out the loft. Bang! You know how those little gaps were? Bang, bang. 
And we, as we hurtled down, we saw Mr. Koenig, 60-odd, doing the first Frisbee flop in history. He took one look at this horse. He went out over the half door. <laughs> he went out over the half door. Neil and I, that, the thing's galloping around over the top of us. So anyway, he somehow got out of the box, that's right, and then it lay down in the car park and couldn't get it up. So he said, fine, leave it. So he got the caverson on, so we banged the thing, and we just left him there. That was lunchtime, uh, evening stables, overnight, in the morning, still there, pulled out all the horses. Nothing would get him up. He lay there for over 24 hours. Nothing would get him up. So uh, Neil said, now then, fucking uh, dad, what do you do with this one now? He said, I shall think. So anyway, <laughs> two days went by, and he said, give it as much water as it wants. So we give them nice warm water when they've not had much water. 17 swallows at a time. Otherwise, you know, it's too much for them. And um, anyway, the, after two days, he said, now then, Mark, he says, you take him down to Totnes, uh, on the meadow there by the bridge. And he said, lunge him till I get there. I'll be there in half an hour. So I took him off. He'd go into a little, one of those little single horse trailers. Do you remember them? And uh, I just lunged him for 20 minutes. No, Mr. Koenig, no, Mr. Koenig. Okay. So anyway, I'm sitting on a anthill with Daisy, smoking a fag, and after about two and a half hours, Mr. Koenig arrived with Neil, and he said, now then, he says, take him in the river. So we took him in the river, and at Totnes, there's a causeway. They used to ford the river in the three-mile chases right up until the war. Really? Yeah, I've got pictures of them. And he'd ridden there. So we took the horse onto the causeway. We then pushed him off. So he's now in the river with just his neck up over. And the force of the river keeps him pinned against the causeway. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right, now then, boy, let's get the saddle on him. So we got the saddle on him. And uh, as soon as he felt that, he started to plunge and uh, go down. And um, what was fascinating, Mr Koenig had no, um, no uh, vocabulary, really. And as the horse disappeared from view, he says, you will find that he is peculiarly tenacious of life. And, I, <laughs> <laughs> and up he came. And up he came. So, and then, then we jumped on him, rode him up and down the river, took him out on the bank. He never moved a muscle. And he was home within six weeks. We, he looked so terrible by then, we had to put a bit of meat on him and, and he went home. But isn't that fascinating? He's, he'd find a way to do it without knocking them about. Sure. He never, ever knocked them about. You know, these people tie their legs up and all that. He never did any of that. He said, by the time they come to me, they've had plenty of that. We've, yeah. got, we've got to think of some other way. So to start with somebody like him was just fantastic. He and his wife used to have the most terrible rows. I live with them. And um, we used to go round, because well, when I got chucked out of Harrow, I was 15, and... And we used to go around all winter clipping the ponies' manes and tails, the locals, to make money, you know, because poor Mr Koenig never got any money. And um, so we'd go around and clip them, and then I'd pull their manes and tails. And Mr Koenig used to, quite a few of the places, he used to say, now then, boys, you pull the manes and tails, I'm going to have a cup of tea with Mrs Huntley-Jones. Now, I had no idea what a cup of tea with Mrs Huntley-Jones involved. <laughs> <laughs> When we when we got back, 
Mrs. Curry would say, you filthy pig, where have you been with that Kim Huntley Jones? So he'd say, boy, you was with me all the time. You was with me all the time. And, and I used to say yes, you know, and I was, I was the alibi. I was, I was the alibi. So I, I, we just had such a wonderful time. And then, um, <laughs> and then when Neil got engaged, he was a very, very pretty girl, and he got engaged. She did very well. She married a film producer in the end. But they got engaged, and... Sid and Mrs. Kernick used to have these terrible rows, so he never brought Sue, girlfriend, home much, you see, but this was the big thing. So anyway, Mr. Kernick and I had just got back from Kim Huntley Jones's <laughs> and suffered this inquisition from Mrs. Kernick, and we were just about to have supper, and Neil came in with Sue, and he said, oh, uh, my mum and uh, dad, this is uh, uh, Sue, uh, and we'd like to, to, to get mum married. Mary. And Mrs. Koenig just had a row with her. So you see, she said, I feel sorry for you, poor girl, married to that son of mine, just like his father. Your life will be a misery. A misery. <laughs> She'd never met her, you see. A misery. He'll want clean shirt every day. Never say thank you. Turn his turnips out halfway up the stairs, straw everywhere, never say thank you. Go out for a packet of cigarettes, come back six days later. Your life will be a misery. So Mr. Curley said, I don't know, Lil. He says, um, I rather like Neil. She said, you would, just like you. You would. She said, I rue the day that child was conceived. I rue the day that child was... Nonsense, said Sid. I remember it well. You said, more, Sidney. More, more, more. Oh, you pig. I never said... <laughs> I mean, it was just the most wonderful place to start. I mean, it was fun, it was exciting, it was dangerous. Um, nothing was too serious. You know. And did that put you off marriage for life? That was. Your... I don't know, I don't know. But they used to have terrible rows. And we'd never seen Alf Garnet and things like that on television in those days. But they were, you know. And when, finally, when he was getting really old, and uh, that was their wedding anniversary, and I said to Neil, I sent a few quid down, take them to the... Uh, grand imperial hotel in Torquay and give them everything you know and I rang the next day and I said to Neil how did it go did mum and dad have a nice time oh he said marvellous wonderful he said when I dropped them off at home he said I heard mum saying to dad and don't think you can climb over the bolster tonight you filthy pig <laughs> clamber over the bolster it's such a wonderful description <laughs> But, you know, you can't beat starting with... And I think also it taught you, which a lot of modern trainers, perhaps young trainers, haven't seen how hard those small trainers work. I mean, just staggering, isn't it? Drive the box, ride work, get the hay in, uh, change. They've got changing always, aren't they, at the races and then train. I mean, the life they lead, and they love it. And it's the only way they can. I've loved it, I'm very lucky. Well, we're very lucky to um, have sat with you for the past hour or so. Very grateful, that was wonderful. Thoroughly enjoyable. Thank you so much for having us. Well, that was amazing, chaps. I don't know quite how we follow that, but let's talk, Charlie, if we may, about your thousand guineas run of a dream. I thought she ran a cracker. How pleased were you with, with her efforts last weekend? We, we were delighted. She ran a great race, considering it was only her third start. Um, she travelled good, just missed the break a fraction, which wasn't ideal, and she just got lost going down into the dip and 
Yeah, we were beaten, what, three lengths, I think, which is pretty good, considering the horses she was running against and how much experience they had. It was always going to be a, a very tough ask uh, at such an early stage of her career, but she did great and we were over the moon and you know, I think we've got a very nice filly on our hands. So looking forward to her and she'll probably now head straight to Ascot. And For which race? Uh, the sensible option would be the jersey. Yeah, I think it'd be a perfect I think race for her. Seven furlongs. Um, coronation entry? Possibly coronation. She's got an entry. Uh, if the handicapper didn't move her, which I think is very un... From un- what mark? Un- from 100. I'm pretty sure she's yeah. going to go up. But if he left her on 100, I, I would absolutely love to win the Sandringham for a third year in a row. That would be quite... It'd incredible. be quite an achievement, but really, you know, but for to win a, another handicap would be off a hundred. No, I know, but you need to go and get dig in and get some black type for her. Yeah, she, she's them. got she's got all the time in the world to do that, and her owner is a real sportsman. He'd like to win a race at Ascot, so oh, you know, we'll see, we'll see. But I'd say if you had to put a gun to my head now and tell me and say where I, she's going to end up, I'd say Jersey probably. And George, since episode one, um, your potential, we're talking about Royal Ascot there, your potential Britannia horse, George Peabody, he went and won well enough up the north, didn't he? You must be pleased pleased with how he's progressing. Yeah, no, very pleased with him. He's he's a lovely horse. He's got such a, he's a very kind horse, probably the easiest horse I've ever trained, including a lot of the bad ones, you know, he's got a great mind. So yeah, we'll see, He's she's, he's popped through the first two hurdles and hoops, if you like, and... Um, He's only 89. So Does that get him in? in one more time yeah. before Ascot? Aren't He's going to run in the Haydock. Um, is what's it called? The Silver Bowl at Haydock, the 50 grand three. When's that? Two weeks on Saturday. Okay. And would he have? A, is 89 enough to get you in at the low end of the handicap, or do you need to be sort of You'd, le- you'd leave yourself sweating, and I just think it's unnecessary. I think if he, if he can, if he can go up a couple of pounds, and you know, he'd still be off an attractive weight in a race like that. So yeah, no, it's been good and. Charlie's been Charlie's just been dealing in doubles, which has been nice. A few nice winners. You've done yeah. big couple of days. I mean, in in, in a couple of hours' time, George Scott runs, so we'll know the result of that by the next one. He's really come to hand nicely, and Eve Lodge, the first of our second uh, syndicate, um, she's going to run at Ascot on Friday. And we think she's pretty nice. So I'm looking forward to seeing her run. Fantastic. And lastly, um, a horse that you're particularly looking forward to in the next week or so before we record the third episode in the new series. George? I like um, a filly called Miss Mulligan, who, who's, who's due to run quite soon. I think she's probably capable of winning on soft ground off her mark. So, yeah, her mark is um, 80. She's running Ascot on Saturday under the, the head turner. In the In the Silk Series race, so... Should should be should go well. And Charlie, what's yours? I've got two two old favourites. George is going to roll his eyes and Don't throw his if you say King Oscar, script I'm out the window. But Chief oh. of Chiefs in the Victoria Cup, I am excited about. He is in great nick. Loves Ascot. Ascot specialist, big field specialist. He will go very well. And good old King Ottica is going to finally prove me right. He's going to go to York. We've got rain in the forecast. Big field mile. Jamie Spencer had a little sit on him this morning. He flew. Does that every morning. Uh, Are um, you guaranteeing us that one day this season, King Ottica is going to win one? He will win a big one at some point this season. Mark Charlie's words. Okay. Tea's on the table, chaps. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Now, if you could just move the mic. Yes. We're all done. That's us. 
for an exceptional episode two of series three. We'll be back in a couple of weeks or so. Until then, thanks to our producer, Carl, from Cambridge TV. Thanks also to our partners, Fitzdares, winner of the latest SBC Racing Sports Book of the Year. Most of all, thanks to our special guest, Samar Prescott. Please don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, do give us a review, preferably five stars, please. And follow us on Twitter at Bridal Podcast. On behalf of George, Charlie and myself, thanks very much for taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Goodbye. Goodbye.